I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Today on First Lady and Friends, our conversation was with Liz Owens. She is the CEO at YWCA Utah. She has an incredible story of growing up in Utah County here in Utah and also spending time with her education in the UK, learning incredible lessons on empowering women and uh, dignity for all. Uh, I hope you have fun like I did. And let's get proximate. Uh, we are here with First Lady and Friends, and my friend today is Liz Owens. She is the CEO of YWCA Utah. Liz is a womanist. I haven't heard that word, which I love. A womanist, a feminist, multiracial, multicultural woman of color from Utah. She serves as a community educator, gender justice, and racial justice activist. Her multi-issue work is firmly rooted within a human rights and social justice framework with a focus on the intersections of power and privilege. That is a lot. It is And a lot. I am so happy you're here. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we met, gosh, it's been about a year ago, a little mm-hmm. over a year ago, we um, decided to do a, a service project at YWCA Mm -hmm. and you were amazing and you were just getting started. Yeah. Which was crazy. Yeah. I'm uh, coming up on my second year anniversary, but the, I mean, it's, it was the second week of the lockdown when I started. So it sort of feels like either 10 years some days and some days it's like two days. So. Yeah. 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 You see that. But let's go before we get into all that and your work here. Um, you just have an incredible story, and I just want to hear it. I want our listeners to hear it. I want to talk about you grew up here in Utah, mm-hmm. in Utah County, mm-hmm. and let's let's talk a little bit about that, your family background, and, and just kind of what that was like. Yeah, so I grew up in Provo, Utah, um, went to Timview High School, go Thunderbirds, <laughs> and um, and loved it, actually. So, I mean, it was a unique experience. Um, because, uh, I was, you know, especially in the eighties and the nineties, it was a predominantly white community and growing up as a person of color, that was always kind of like the identifying thing about me and my family, but we were really involved in our church and our community. And I just felt like, um, you know, people often ask me like, what must have that, what, how did that feel? And I feel like I had a really great childhood and continue to have, a really great connection to my years growing up, including through high school. Like I, I enjoyed high school. So, um, so there were some challenges and some of those challenges I think really started to 
lead me to my career path, which made me think, and primarily it was the the things that pointed me out as different as both a young girl and a young girl of color. And those became really salient in my life. Mm-hmm. Just trying to understand it because oftentimes it was pointed out to me and trying to find my place in the world as all kids are. Um, and I just continued to follow that. And so my whole career has been really focused on women and issues impacting women, particularly women who have um, additional barriers to accessing safety and security and economic empowerment. So um, that and that all started in Provo, Utah, and just just looking through life or looking through at my life through really a lens of how do I fit in here and what's my role and um, what makes me different and why are some people pointing it out and what does that mean to me and that sort of asking those questions and trying to understand mm. my life. Um, and for me, it was actually, although there were some hard times, it was a really positive experience and I feel really grateful because... I had a great childhood mm. and I loved Provo. <laughs> oh, good. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, do you, so tell me a little bit about your family of origin. Did you, um, did you have other people of color that were part of your, part of your family, part of your neighborhood? Uh, how, how did that all play out? Yeah. So my mom is from Samoa. And she is, um, and she was raised LDS and she went to BYU Hawaii. And she, this is kind of a typical kind of BYU Hawaii love story in some ways. Um, so she was on scholarship there and she worked for the Polynesian Cultural Center. Mm-hmm. And she met my dad who was stationed there. He was in the military and he's black. Oh, okay. So um, she had three kids, got married, had three kids. And then when they got divorced, she decided to move to Utah because we have family here. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are a lot of Polynesians who resettle here. And, um, and so she thought that this would be a great place and we'd be close to the church that she was raised in and um, and some family members. I think what was different about my experience is that they – we I don't speak Samoan. And she didn't raise us to speak Samoan. We just didn't have any – by the time we moved here, I was five and we didn't really have any close connections to the culture besides her. Okay. And a lot of the – the kids here did. They were raised either in the islands and moved over or they were raised um, speaking the, the language and we weren't. And so we being my two older brothers and myself. And so we had a lot of cousins and friends, but I think, you know, there was also some some wards and some um, the, uh, there's a few LDS wards and branches that are um, culturally specific. And so We've always been close to the Samoan wards and that sort of thing. So there was always a community of folks. But um, I never felt, I mean, even now in the Samoan ward, sometimes they speak Samoan. And um, my mom will, or my family will be speaking Samoan. And my mom will say, well, what do you think, Liz? And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand <laughs> or speak Samoan. So she just forgets that she's, she's going back and forth through the languages. And so there wasn't really like a clear fit. And in high school, there was a lot of Polynesian kids who hung out together and they were friendly, but, um, but they uh, were, I was not necessarily part of their group. I think the same is true for my brothers. And I have received some comments from Polynesian folks where they were like, Oh, it's so cool that you're black. And so I could see that they clearly saw me as black as opposed to, Oh, interesting. Someone like them. So I never felt totally like that was my group either. Um, But just made a group of friends who I'm still friends with. So, Which is amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting thought too because um, I we were just. Uh, honoring an artist at our at the these mansion awards artist awards and his name is Fidelis Bueller and he is um his mom was from the Gilbert Islands and his dad was European and uh, American and it was like he talks about this uh dual cultural identity so that that's kind of what you're talking about mm-hmm. and that in a lot of ways it's I've heard that described as it's really hard to know where you where your identity is because mm-hmm. Samoans don't see you as Samoan um black African American people don't see you as African American yeah, because yeah. you're Samoan yeah, and and yeah. so describe a little bit about sort of that identity piece that that kind of you have to wade through. Yeah, I mean that that part of that experience of growing up and figuring out who I am was um I mean that's a really good way to explain it is that I didn't really know where I fit and there seemed to be so many people around me who kind of fit naturally in places and I never did and it was often pointed out to me just whether it was the way that I looked or um uh, having the unique experience of having been an army brat for a short period of time but I wasn't born here and all my friends were so there was always things that sort of set me apart. And I think, especially when you're young, you're looking for where you belong. And um, and I I think I held space for that as well as just, I think I was lucky because I felt like I belonged in a lot of different ways. But, but what interested me are the ways that I didn't feel like I belonged in my own community because in Provo, funny enough, I get, I got, growing up, I got asked more where I was from than when I lived in London, where no one asked me. <laughs> but then I'd come home to visit and I'd, you know, there'd be someone in the store or whatever. And they'd say, where are you from? Um, so, and that always is like a reminder to me, like from Provo, like yeah. this is, this is where. Why are you asking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, th- I think that that's just, that is my story in coming to terms with like my identity and that, because that was so salient, it really led what I was interested in. It really provided the foundation for my career and thinking about how different identities um, interact in society and what it means to be a woman or a girl and a poor woman or a girl or a wealthy woman or a girl, um, because those are different experiences. And the experience of being a woman and a girl is um, different based on your other identities. And that all became really interesting to Mm me. So um, I think I just continually watched it. But growing up, I didn't understand it. I mean, there were definitely times where things would happen or people would say things to me. And I thought it was about me. And I that became part of my story. And then when I went to college and I got I was able to learn other frameworks for understanding the world, patterns of the way in which women experience the world, like commonalities of it, of shared experiences of women, of people of color. And I could see myself in that. I was like, wait a second. All of those things that I thought were about me personally were actually shared experiences that other women or girls or people of color have. And then that even felt more of like a, like a, a epiphany and a comfort. And, a, um, I think it continued to pique my, um, curiosity about the different ways in which people experience the world. And then what really would get my fire going is um, I've been really um, fortunate, I feel like, my entire life in so many different ways. Um, just had a lot of love and support around me. And the ways in which other people didn't have that really made me want to do something about that. So that's 
all that just led me to thinking about women, women with lack of access. And, um, and I built my career around that. That's, that's incredible. And I love that. And I love that you sort of channeled that into something that you wanted to know more about. I love the curiosity of that. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of my new thing lately is just being curious about everything and, and just not, you know, not limiting yourself to what, what you can be curious about, what you can learn about. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that's really cool. Um, so tell me, so you went to Tint View Mm -hmm. and then, and then you, these experiences started to resonate with you and led you to, to where? Well, I started at Utah Valley University and actually I didn't know what I was, (laughs) I was like a lot of people and, um, and I had no clue what to major in. And um, I was first generation as well and didn't have a lot of, I mean, I had a lot of support for attending, just not a lot of experienced guidance on how I should plan my future yeah. or my career. And so besides like academic advisors who um, were helpful, um, but didn't really fill the full gap of help that I needed to to focus. And I had a lot of friends, parents who had gone to college who were trying to help me. Um, but I, some of the things that they had presented to me felt so out of my, out of my reach. Um, for example, one of my friend's dad said, Oh, you should go to law school. And I was like, I don't, I've never met a lawyer yet at that point, you know, like <laughs> it just seems so, I didn't know anybody who went to law school. And so, um, so that seems so so out of my reach. And so I just kind of tried to figure it out. I was working full time, supporting myself um, and just doing my bachelor's degree. And that was the big mountain, Abby. That was the yeah. thing that I was going to do. And I life would be different afterward and I'd get a good job. And I just that was the, that was going to be the huge lifelong accomplishment. And it took me like six or seven years. And then once I was done it was not the big thing that I thought it was. I uh, thought like yeah. I'd hit yeah. it, you know, but <laughs> no. And I had some professors who were, who were like, you should think about grad school. And at the same, and I was like, grad school, I don't know anybody who went to grad school. Yeah. Like who goes to grad school? And they just kept at it um, in, in a good way that yeah. they were like, you can do this because I'm the kind of person who like goes to open office hours, who shows up all the time because I just wanted to do well and learn and so they were like, you can do this. But um, and it was those professors, which is kind of a common story, but it was the the professors who just kept pushing me. And I'd never even considered that for my life. Yeah. And it changed my life. That's that's such a cool story. And, you know, I had a, a professor that made a huge difference in my life, too. And I mm-hmm. think it, it speaks to the idea of that one caring adult Mm -hmm. in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though you're, you're a young adult, but there's that one caring person that takes an interest, sees the potential in you Mm -hmm. and then, and then makes sure to know you know that you are capable. And Mm -hmm. I think it's huge. It's huge. It's huge for people. Um, I think, I think we need to remember that as we interact with young people and young children um, to to be that adult that sees in them what they don't see in themselves. Absolutely. So I want to continue. You have a, a, an incredible education story, and so I want to keep talking about that when we come right back. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to 
Give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back here with Liz Owens. She's the CEO of YWCA Utah. And you just have an incredible story and an incredible education path. So you started out at UVU and and then you you got through that decided to go on mm-hmm. um, because you you'd been encouraged by some mentors um so then so then what so then what so i uh studied sociology at uvu and um was really interested in society and groups of people and um wanted to, i was really interested in human rights and at that time which was like the late 2000s uh human rights was really understood globally as a set of legal instruments um, that started with the International Human Rights Act. And, um, and, in the, and in the U.S., it was really focused on teaching and human rights. So most of the programs were uh, Ivy League education programs, which is not what I was really interested in. And so I had to look outside of the U.S., which, again, just never even considered. And, uh, and so I ended up going to the University of Essex, which is the first human rights program in the world, mm-hmm. and study the theory and practice of human rights, which is um, very legal as well, but there was a lot of theory. And I ended up staying there. Now, I moved from Provo to to Essex, which is a suburb of London, mind you, and I hated it. I was going to say, was like, that is a transition. <laughs> it was such a culture shock. I was like, everybody's so rude here, and they know where they're going. Like, they get off the subway, they get off the tube, and they just like straight know where they're going where I'm like dawdling <laughs> or if I'm walking on the street then I say hi to someone I pass because that's how it was in Provo yeah you'd had, you'd acknowledge a stranger but people would avoid you and I was like everybody is so mean here they're they're probably really uh su- like suspect of you because they were like who is this <laughs> yeah. lady who is just what does she want she's so darn friendly <laughs> I'm 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 sure that that is what it was exactly because after living there for five years I became that way where really? someone would like stop me with a smile and I was like what are you selling <laughs> right like <laughs> I, try not to make eye contact but um but yeah I was that person from Provo Utah and I didn't think I'd stay uh, but then I had the opportunity to do an internship with a women's rights organization. Mm-hmm. It was a really cool organization that started out as a suffragist organization okay. and then uh, moved into women's policy. And I worked on a campaign that looked at the intersection of race and gender and policy implications for mm-hmm. for women of color. And that continued. It taught me that I didn't want to work in policy, first yeah. of yeah. all, um, but it, w- it continued to help me think more clearly and um, have a broader context of the way in which women experience really gender in the world and how that is influenced by um, all their different identities. So I began working for an organization called Women in Prison, and we worked with women affected by the criminal justice system from teen girls to um, all of the girls in, in London and South East England prisons and all of the women there. And um, And it was just like... I mean, it was 
it was one of the, the the things in my life that has changed me the most, I think, because our prisons, their prisons, and I think ours are probably not different, but I thought I, I thought of myself as different from these women mm-hmm. and um, maybe thought of myself as special and unique in a way that I made better decisions or something. And then I spent a lot of time in prison <laughs> with these women and I was like there, but for the grace of God, go I, because once you hear someone's story, I'm like, I don't know how you could have chosen different. Like you've been making every decision to survive. And if I imagine myself in your life story, I can't imagine ending up anywhere else either because you were trying to make decisions to survive and you did. And for poor women, that often meant um, drug use and, and other things. And, um, and uh, for women of color, it often meant, um, you know, uh, some immigration issues and, and coming without visas and that sort of thing. So, but I could see how different women were impacted by the criminal justice system based on their different experiences and different identities. And so, I, I mean, it just, what I realized is that we are all really impacted by the environment and the support and the access to support around us. And that I was really lucky. I was really lucky to be born and raised in a place where I had a lot of support and safety and access to support. And, um, and some people don't have that and that they have all the potential I had have, um, and they have all of the, the abilities and desires and dreams um, but they just can't break into like that access. And sometimes, I mean, the terrible story is, is that sometimes folks are just in the situation from as young children. And then by the time they're like, wait a second, it's like they've already made a set of decisions that have yeah. put them down pathways and tracks in life that are just so hard to overcome because you might then be 20 with, you know, a couple of kids and I mean, all your choices then are constrained by raising your kids well. And yeah, I just and then all of a sudden your decisions become less and less. Th- there becomes less and less choices. Yes. I mean, you can't yep. make those choices because of the things you're. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So it um, it really kind of shook my world and broadened my understanding. And and I spent a lot of time reflecting a lot, reflecting on um the way that I thought about my life up until that point and that story continually shifted because as I learned more I'd look back at it and I think sitting here today I say I love my childhood and um and I love being raised in Provo and I couldn't imagine anything different but it's also because I've learned more about the world and can hold that in context with all the things that I've learned about the world. If you would have asked me when I was like 16, I would probably would have been like, Provo's so lame and right. Like, and, <laughs> yeah, I don't really like it. And I wish I could see the world, but I understand now how, where I was raised matters mm-hmm. and, um, and all of the support and access around me. Like I'm here today because of all of the people and the environments that I've had the privilege to be a part of. Um, and other people haven't been so lucky. Yeah. And, and by no, nothing that we did. I mean, I feel the same way. I mean, I was, I was raised in a rural community, not far from Provo. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I didn't appreciate it when I was, when I was younger, I was raised on a, on a farm, on a ranch and, and, you know, I was saying, I'm like, I want to get out of here. (laughs) Now it's like every weekend we're trying to go home, but, but I, I, I love your point. Like, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, like, 
I've thought that a lot with with homelessness. And I mean, I there was a point where my dad was out of work. He started a company and it had failed and he had 10 kids mm. and no work. And I I just there was a moment when I was working with some of our uh, friends experiencing homelessness. And I remember thinking, my gosh, this could have been me. Mm-hmm. This could have been me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, there's just so many ways it could be. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah. Yeah. So so talk a little bit about maybe the differences you see in you, you talked about you spent a lot of time in the, in the prison system in the U.K. Do you see some similarities? Do you see some differences uh, here in the U.S.? Have you have you spent much time? I mean, I don't know if you've done much outside of what you did there, but is there are there differences uh, in, in those two places? Um, I think in terms of the criminal justice system, or at least in terms of custody and and um, being sent to custody in England, they call it remanded in custody. But um, it is different because here there is sort of this kind of social element of punishment, that it's the consequence of the decisions you made. And in England, that exists to some degree. There's more of kind of a social and also kind of a legal precedent of uh, re- the potential for rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. So their their sentences aren't as long at all. There, which at some point at times, I even you know I would think I'd hear of crimes that someone committed and be like, "What? They only got that amount of time, right?" But um, but I do appreciate the idea that people are redeemable, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that I. I think that that lacks in the structure of our criminal justice system. And then in the the uh, resettlement system or just our practices when people are resettling, because what we know is that when they're coming out of custody, it's really hard to redeem yourself when you can't get a job because you have a record, when you can't pay rent because you have a record. Like, where else do you go but the world that you came from that led you to prison? Right. So um, I see that kind of difference, whereas when you are released in England, you actually have full access to their benefit systems. So oh, okay. um, you can get back on your feet and it can be a period of life where you were in custody, but you were settled in the community, you got housing, you got connected to benefits and a job, and you can kind of move on from that with the support that you need in a different area than perhaps you came from that led you there. Um, it's really hard in the U.S. It's like the structures are just so in place to lead people, to keep people where they're at. Mm, that's interesting. What about the the drug use? And, and you, you mentioned um, a lot of times that's where people end. Do you feel like it's the, it feels the same? I mean, that's the same problem as we have here is the, the drug use? Definitely. Definitely. I think that um, it was, there was, it never is just the drug use, right? It yeah. just is that, but it never, it never stands alone. And it is just so prevalent. It is like, it's folks self-medicating to some degree. It is, there's all different reasons why I know people use drugs, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was everywhere and it is also everywhere here. So mm-hmm. it's a conversation we often have at YWCA too, because what does it mean to, to, see someone as they are and support them to accessing safety and security. And um, do we have hard stops where we're like, no drugs? Or do we accept that, actually, this is a part of the community that we're serving. 
So how do we connect them to the resources they need to be safe mm. and healthy? Mm. Um, and that's that's a that's a sh- constant balance yeah. um, between it's sort of between harm reduction and a hard line. Yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Um, so then you you spent that time there in England in the UK, and then what what brought you back? Mm. <laughs> Well, first of all, I ended up loving it, built a community there. Um, so even though I thought I could never live there, I think I totally like absorbed it and became the fast walker and all of those things. <laughs> I felt like I went there once. We've been there. We visited once. And I thought my first thought was like, oh, it feels a little like home because for me, I'm looking at like they look just like my grandparents because mm-hmm. that's where my family came yeah, from. A yeah. lot of them were was from England. And mm-hmm. so it was this like familiarity, but. Still very Europe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of smoking, which I a lot of smoking. Like, had a really hard time with. Yeah. But yeah. A lot of public confrontation, too, which doesn't have a, happen in Provo. Yeah. Like, in the same way where it's like, I paid two dollars for the and someone's fighting with the yeah. with like a, a, a someone at a store or something. I'm like, just. Yeah. I would never do that. We decided <laughs> we decided Utah, our, our natural state is passive aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not, I would not aggressive aggressive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I saw that all the time and I was like, I would never do that. So, um, okay. I forgot the question. No. What brought you back? Yeah. Oh, you know, I was in my early thirties and I was talking to friends here and they were like, oh yeah, I'm buying a house and everything. And that just wasn't happening in London. And, um, and it just seems so far away there because I still worked in there. They call it charities or the third sector. So I still worked with nonprofits and, um, I was just like, Dang. and I, and I lived in a, in a flat with, um, I, there was like seven other people and they were all older than me. And mm-hmm. I was like, is this what I have to look forward to? And my friends there who are buying flats, they have much different kind of, uh, house buying system because London is really old and they have different, you can, you can buy a percentage of flat and things like that. And that's what they were doing. And it'd be like a one bedroom flat where they, it's them and their husband and their kid. Mm. And I was like, this is your mortgage. Like this is where you're going to settle down. So that was hard because the quality of life I felt like I could have in Utah was better. And I had access to that. And that, that appealed to me. And then my family's here. My family's here and, um, you know, my now husband and we were still to, we were still dating long distance mm-hmm. and, um, and he was, we were trying to see if he could move there, but I was like, everything is there in Utah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I came yeah. back. Oh, I love, I love that you're back. And now yeah. I want to get into, uh, your work at the y- YWCA, all the amazing things that are going on there. And we'll do that when we come right back. And we are here having a conversation with uh, Liz Owens. We've had such a great conversation. And I really want to get into, you know, where we we met. Again, we did this uh, project together. You were so gracious. And again, it was kind of COVID central in the middle of everything. And we, I said, hey, do you want to plan, <laughs> help me plan this project? What have you got for us? And it was so cool. It was so cool. It was seriously, it was so fun. We had the spouses of the legislature, um, the legislative spouses were there with us. Uh, we painted two murals mm-hmm. um, in some of the public spaces there mm-hmm. at, at the YWCA campus. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a moment, I think, for every, all of us. Again, we were not really doing things in big groups and mm-hmm. it was still really kind of a, scary time for a lot of folks and 
it was just kind of at this connecting moment. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a little bit about what the YWCA does and is. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about your work. Again, you came in right during COVID, so it was a crazy time. But let's talk a little bit about what you're doing there, what it is, Mm -hmm. um, who you're helping, all those kinds of things. So YWCA is a part of a global organization, actually, that sort of sprung up um, as a counterpart to YMCA. So it started as the Young Women's Christian Association. And um, and but now we are uh, non-denominational. We're a secular organization. And um, but that's how it started. And and the organization's about 130 years old in the U.S. And as Across the U.S., YWCA USA has about 200, I think, and 20 uh, associations. And those associations provided started out providing meeting places for women in the community. It actually started out as a place where women who were moving from more rural community into Mm -hmm. urban centers needed a safe place to stay and live. And so that's why YWCA was originally created. And then it just continued to shift to meet the needs of the communities in which they're at. In. And so 116 years ago, YWCA Utah was started. And um, it also started as a boarding home for uh, women who were working in the city, but who came from our rural communities. Um, and it shifted over the years. It's been a halfway house. It's um, provided places for like during World War II, where women would go and get some job training. And then after World War II, get more um, sort of Training and support and classrooms, workshops around housekeeping and cooking and kind of returning to the home from mm-hmm. being in the workforce as um, a lot of the soldiers came came home and then took up the jobs that, that women had during the war. And so um, – and our YWCA did all of that as well. We were the first boarding home, first job um, force for women in Utah. Um, and uh, – and we just continue to change over the years. And in 1970, YWCA USA decided to add to the mission. It's always been women focused, but decided to add some element of um, anti-racism or racial equity work to it. And I think mm-hmm. coming from um, out of the 60s and thinking about women who really needed space, spaces to gather and lacked access um, to a lot of opportunities. YWCA's across the country had been providing spaces. So they they were a place that were was already providing some spaces for uh, black that allowed black women to gather, although it wasn't um, necessarily integrated, but they would have a day or a space and a time and that sort of thing. So in Utah, we have a pool um, that is no longer in use. It's a, a little over 100 years old. And we um, have the gym, of which was one of the places you did the mural. And I have to tell you, Abby, uh, the Jazz are redoing that gym for our kids. And they're doing it with is their Is my new mural theme. going away? But we were like, listen, <laughs> no way. We were like, you can touch anything but our mural. <laughs> and so, no, it's not. But it is okay. going to be matched with the jazz colors. And I, we were just like, you just can't touch this wall. And they're touching everything else. New floors, <laughs> other so walls. Cool. And so it would be. Say, if, if it were to be anything, if I had to give up the mural to the jazz, I, yeah. you know. I <laughs> We didn't want that. We loved it, though, because. Yeah. That mural made a difference day by day walking through that gym or having the kids play. It was just it's so happy and colorful. We actually wanted them to design it the rest of the gym around the mural. But um, but also really happy they're designing it around the jazz. So (laughs) love it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in 1976, YWCA's decided um, to create 
women's shelters, battered women's shelters is what they called them back then. And today, YWCA USA as an association is the largest provider of domestic violence shelters for women. And in Utah, we were the first and are the largest provider in the state of, of, um, emergency shelter for women and children. And um, so we, that opened in 1976 uh, and remains open. We have a child care center that opened in 1966 for our community and remains open. And we also have children's services um, that serve uh, after school and also uh, a drop-in kind of crisis nursery for residents. Um, and then we have a an, a transitional affordable housing complex. So we actually have six buildings um, in central Salt Lake City, and we provide the walk-in services, emergency shelter um, for women and children and men. Um, we provide housing for some folks um, and all of the children's services. And then our child care early education center serves some some of the people on our campus, but mostly the community because there's a hundred pl- hundred um, a hundred spots for kids to come in, and of course we can't fulfill that all. So. And which has been really needed during the pandemic. And we feel really grateful, not only that we were able to weather and stay open, because that was really hard yeah. um, for child care centers. So you were open and you st- were you still running your early childhood programs mm-hmm. the whole time? Early childhood stayed open, which w- was hard, I think, mainly because of obviously the exposure as well as the great resignation and the pay for, for teachers is just yeah. really low. And we experienced that. Uh, and of course, our emergency shelter and our walk-in services, 100% of our services remained operational because we um, we have a commitment to the community. Yeah. And in times of need, the need's still there. So, in fact, it probably increased. Right. It did. Right? It did. And so we... and. From our, you know, entry level staff to me, everybody just had a commitment to show up and we were scared at times and um, just there was so much changing information. It was a whole new world about your own risk. And we all have people at home or ourselves who might be vulnerable. Um, But we really focused on uh, the organization practices, a trauma informed model and we're certified in what's called sanctuary. And that really became our recipe and our guide for how we treat each other, how we take care of ourselves, how we support our residents in crisis. And I feel really grateful that the organization did that. They were certified in February of 2020, right before I came, because the mental health toll on staff, on residents, on all of us just increased. There was so much uncertainty. And every day we're dealing with crises and a lot of heartbreaking stories around the children and the women we're serving um, and and a lot of great stories too, but it, holding all of that for what's happening in the world and what's happening on our campus mm-hmm. uh, just felt like a lot. And being able to call upon all of our sanctuary tools and thinking about how we engage with each other with kindness and compassion and that we really just focused on we will get through this and we knew we would as a society and as an organization. And the thing we're going to remember is how we treated each other Mm -hmm. and how we took care of ourselves. And so we were like, no matter what, let's be kind to each other because that's all we're going to remember. We're going to talk about a pandemic happened and um, we don't want to remember that we were all stressed out. That's, I mean, that might be part of the story, but I, but I think that the narrative will be different because we continue to think about how we take care of each other and how we just lead with kindness and compassion. Um, and that's trauma informed. And we're trying to do that for 
ourselves while we try to provide that space for the children and the women who live with us. Oh gosh, that is that's incredible. I love the thought of of leading with kindness, leading with compassion. Um you you mentioned a couple of times trauma informed and maybe just explain a little bit about what that means. We we did some trauma informed training for for our show up board and mm-hmm. and I we're we're really pushing this idea in you know because we've been working with foster children and foster families mm-hmm. and this idea of trauma informed training um, I've not heard it called sanctuary I don't know that program but we know about trauma informed talk a little bit more about what that means and and just I just think every human probably should be trauma informed <laughs> at this point definitely well trauma informed as a theory and a practice really. Um, means that we you understand as a person that everybody has experienced some form of harm or hurt or trauma, and that um, and that really informs how you engage with them. So one of the ways we talk about it in domestic violence and is instead of asking what's wrong with you, we ask what's happened to you. And an example of that is if you have a woman or a child who is behaving in some some kind of way, right? Like maybe they're in their room and they're yelling and they're screaming and they're they're running around and they seem really erratic. And in, as an advocate and someone who's supporting them, and you could say, "Well, what's wrong with you?" Right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you could say, "What's happened to you?" And when you say, "What's happened to you?" There's a shift in your own mind of mm-hmm. the situation and how you engage, because you understand that this person has been through something and that. Um, the way that they're responding could be a very natural response. And then you understand that for yourself and for everybody around you. So for example, if there is a staff member who comes in late all the time, right, who is not getting their work done, who is, um, you know, always off camera in the virtual meetings, I could call them in and say, what's wrong with you? Or I could say, tell me what's happening. What's happening to you? What's happening with you? And that shifts my own mind of the situation. And it leaves me open to the, here's that word again, being curious about their experience. And if I'm curious about their experience, then I'm engaging in an open way. And I hope with an open heart and open mind. So really the heart of trauma informed approach is understanding that, you know, that people have gone through something and being really open to, um, to understanding that the way that they're reacting might actually be really reasonable. Um, yeah. I think of it when, because I actually live in Lehigh, so I'm in rush hour every day, and I always think about it when someone's driving erratically. Like, maybe they need their meds. Maybe they have someone who's sick in the car. Like, I just want to take a trauma-informed approach because then I'm not, like, mad at them. I'm not shaking my fist. I'm like, yep, you're in a hurry. And you could be in a hurry because you got to get home, your wife's in labor, whatever. Like, for all of these reasons, so many things could be happening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I choose to assume the best and give them the benefit of the doubt while understanding, yeah, people are always going through things. Mm. Then I engage differently. And then the the engagement is, the relationship is different. The collaboration is different. And we hope that it creates a, a, a safer space for everybody, for staff and for residents. Um, and for our organization as a whole, often in, in kind of crisis work, there are crises every day, and some of them are heartbreaking, and that reverberates through the organization. And taking a trauma-informed approach is one way that we hope um, 
calms that, that really stops that cycle of cycling up into an organization in trauma Mm -hmm. and in crisis, that we're an organization who's helping people heal as they experience harm. And that means ourselves as well. But as we know from ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences, that we carry the harm. And I think a trauma-informed approach says how can we start to heal the harm as we go instead of carrying it until we're adults mm. and in some sort of situation and then having to to go back through childhood? And we think about that at YWCA for the kids on our campus. Like, how do we start healing now and for the adults and for the staff? Like, how do we how do we engage with each other, solve our issues now, uh, interrupt cycles that aren't working for us or chaotic cycles so that we heal as we go instead of just adding trauma. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful stuff and really important. And it's something we we're trying to learn and I'm trying to learn every day. I love Mm -hmm. the idea of just being even the person that's driving you crazy in traffic, like having that openness to, to, to having grace for, Mm -hmm. for somebody that's, that may be doing something for a reason. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about taking care of yourselves and the people that are doing this work, taking care of themselves. We've heard a lot the the phrase uh, compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. How do we, I think we're all, I mean, I mean, we're seeing the trauma playing out in Ukraine. We're seeing trauma played out all over the world and even in our own communities. And again, as individuals, if there's, you know, domestic issues or, or things that are going on in everybody's life. And then you're, you're daily working in this trauma sort of chaotic environment. How, how do you keep from getting compassion fatigue as they say? That's a great question. So f- what I believe is that Compassion fatigue and burnout happens when you don't have support in your life and in your family. Because I, I actually think people can work really hard for long periods of time, and I think compassion is pretty never-ending. But it's only never-ending when you're filling up your cup, right? Yeah. So you have it to give. And so um, I think the fatigue comes when you're giving, giving, giving and not being able to refill the things that you need to continue to give, whether it's reading something and having strong emotions about what's happening in the world, or it is working in your community or at work and you're having strong emotions about what people are going through. You have to have a support system in your life um, and in your workplace that helps you navigate that so that you can continue to give. And so I think burnout, compassion, fatigue are actually a result of a lack of supports. And when I see that happening, I'm like, oh, here's the red flag. You need some, we need, we need to talk about like what we can do to refill your cup, to give you space and time to breathe. Cause all of the things in the, in the world are, are important. All the things we do here are important and they will always be here. And so how do we sustain ourselves so that we can continue to care and give? Um, and the problem, I think, really shows up when you give and give and give. And then soon it's the work is taking more than you want it to give. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to give back. And it's an organization's job. And it's your job as a human to build, figure out how to be that support for other people and, and build that support. Ask for help um, around yourself so that you can continue to give what you know you can give. Mm-hmm. Um 
And I think the other thing I'd say about that is because oftentimes when we care about one thing, it's all integrated. You can't care about homeless without caring, homelessness without caring about families and people and food insecurity. But what I try to think about is I have a, a set of skills and um, an opportunity in this world to focus on one piece of the pie. And what I depend on is you to focus on your piece of the pie. Mm. And we can, there are so many different ways to do that. You don't have to work in nonprofits. You don't have to donate money. You might have time or talent or whatever. There are so many different ways to do that. But I think if we all are working toward the benefit of our community and we think outside ourselves as I, I want us all to think that we're all in this community together. We're all in this. We have to share this space. We will succeed together. And I think if you think about wherever you're at in your life, whatever your life looks like, there's probably something you can do to contribute to that. Mm. Um, and and for me, I'm like, this is the set of skills I have, and I'm going to I'm gonna focus it right here, and I'm going to depend on other folks to take care of air quality yeah. and those things that I still care about. But I, right. I, have, I have limited time and also deserve to go home and play with my toddler and yeah. not be... And just be present with them. Yeah. So. Oh, that is such great advice. And, and you know, I've been talking to my kids and they, they get upset about issues. And I'm always, you know, like, well, I'm I'm trying to do what I can. And I don't know how to take care of all that other stuff. But I love that thought of just really focusing on what you can do and kind of relying on other people to do, to do the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I love that. Um, this has been such a great conversation, Liz. I, this this could go on and yeah. on forever because I'm just enthralled with your experiences and 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 your wisdom. Let me just ask you as we end. Um, we, we've I've heard this over and over. This idea of mentorship, and we're trying to figure out at Show Up like we're really trying to nail this one down, and mm-hmm. I, I I don't think we've figured it out yet, but. Tell me somebody who has really influenced you, has been a mentor to you, and and what that experience is like, and 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 the lessons that you've learned as you've tried to mentor. It's a great question, um, and I, at some point, I decided there was a time when I worked in London where I was looking for a professional mentor and I was looking for someone who was similar to me, who could understand my experiences and the way that I navigate the world and who kind of had a similar journey. And there was no one like that because everyone's journey is unique and everyone's perspective on the world is a little unique. And then I decided to make mentors wherever I could. And that was really life changing for me. So I have so many mentors and, um, and I ask for help a lot and it's surprising because so many people want to help and will like really show up for, for me in a lot of different ways. Um, but, uh, I've had, I have men, I have bosses, I have people who are nothing like me, um, and have a different life experience that I continue to learn from. And I still have so many of those people in my life who I'll call up and spend an hour with or meet for coffee. Um, and so I end up being that funny person where I'm like, Oh, I have, I'm having lunch with this 90 year old man because (laughs) we like, and I have a lot of that in my schedule or like this, this woman who retired, who is like nothing like my own life experience um, from, you know, corporate world or whatever. um, Because I, I've just, everybody has so much good stuff to give. Mm. And um, 
So I just decided to, to get it from everywhere. So that for me, and that's still my practice. I like seek mentors out in, in lots of different people and not just people who have seniority to me, but I, there's so much I admire about my staff and, um, and even if it's interns or whatever. And I also ask to learn from them often and ask them to lead something or teach me something. Um, and I, so I look for it everywhere. I don't know the answer to the mentor question because I do know that it is an important question. And it, like I said, it made all the difference in my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. Having those professors who are like, well, I'll help you write the application. You need to do this. Did you call these people yet? You know, like that was really important. And I don't know how that happened besides me kind of showing up and asking for help. Um, but even today, it's old bosses, it's new people, new friends, it's people who I have nothing on the face of it in common with. Mm. Um, and I feel incredibly grateful for all of the love. Like that feels like love and support. And I feel like I have every resource I need to be successful, both personally and as an organization. And sometimes I don't know why I'm so lucky. So I just try to practice gratitude because I, um, I feel like there's so many people here who are willing to give you a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't agree. know if that's helpful. No, Abby, I but. think that's it's very helpful, and and it takes a real sense of humility to again be curious and to learn um, from people that maybe you don't. You know, it, it takes a meekness as well to to say like I'm willing to learn from somebody that has a completely different life experience from me, younger, mm-hmm. uh, older, whatever you know, from different generations or, or different life experiences. So yeah. I think that's absolutely beautiful. So thank you. Um, Liz, this has just been delightful and and wonderful and a real learning experience for me. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. Yeah. Thank you, Abby. I think that you're uh, I'm just so proud that you're our first lady. And uh, and I think you're (laughs) you're like an awesome, accessible, really like on the ground person. And that just I've seen that over the past couple of years. And I just again. I'm so proud and always really happy to be able to talk about you and talk about who our first lady is. So thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thanks again for being here. If you want to get involved with Liz Owens and her work at YWCA, visit ywcautah.org. Thanks for being a friend.